0: Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension, I am Tyler Smith I am David Bax And thank you all for coming once again Once again, we're here I think this is our fourth ceremony
1: Yeah, fourth consecutive year here in the beautiful Kodak Theater Sure Which again, it hasn't been called that for a long time Yeah Every year they rename it the Kodak It's a very expensive thing that we pay for Yeah Because they go up and they change the signage uh, there's yeah, a lot, you. a lot of paperwork to fill
0: out. Yeah, thanks everybody for buying those commentaries because uh, <laughs> that's what you're buying is our ability to say Kodak Theater. Yeah, uh, so TM. Here we are at the at
1: the Kodak Theater.
0: So, uh, so here in this mo- in, in these intros as we as we uh, get ready to uh, reveal who the the true best. Uh, what the true best movies are and the best uh, achievements, um, you know as opposed to some of the uh, hackier awards <laughs> ceremonies um, you know we usually use the the intro to to reflect back on the year that was uh, in film and we look for any trends and uh, and sometimes they reveal themselves to us very clearly uh, but in in preparing for this i have not i haven 't thought of any i 'm looking from like I'm looking at the various blockbusters. I'm yeah. looking at the various, uh, you know, uh, uh, indie films, and I don't see a common thematic thread.
1: No, but I, I, I agree. Um, it isn't like it was a couple of years ago when everything was about like the dark side of the American dream. Like yes. every other movie was about that. Yeah. Um, uh, no, but I think what we have here, I and mean, we, we've we've pointed out the sort of um, just. Trivial uh, thing that there are a bunch of directors who released multiple movies right. in, in twenty sixteen. Jim Jarmusch, Werner Herzog, um, who else? Um, I, I had a bunch when we when we talked about it the, yeah. other, the other night, but I, I can't think of uh, of who else uh, the big ones are. Uh, I, Peter I Berg. Uh, Peter Berg had two movies out. Uh, yeah, um, two ridiculously similar movies <laughs> uh, in some ways, um, but I think. If you step outside of the movies themselves And look at uh, uh, A a trend And I think this is a continuation Of um, Overall Increased social awareness By movie geeks and and movie fans As you see the sort of not separating the art from the artist, like the the vetting of of people more yeah. and more. You've got obviously the Birth of the Nation thing is like what yeah. kicked off the year twenty sixteen, um, and uh, became a, a huge huge story. Uh, but then, to a slightly lesser extent, you've got the Casey Affleck thing, which right. um, you know is he's the most awarded um, uh, person. We'll, we'll you know stay tuned uh, or stay in your seats. Sorry, this is right. live. Stay in your seats to see if if that trend continues. Uh, here at the BPs But um There has been A considerable amount Of 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 backlash Given um uh, And in both cases These are things that We already knew These aren't like Right uh, You know Nate Parker's Um uh, Rape charge was a, a matter of public record Yeah And the accusations Against Casey Affleck Most of which um Uh Come from the time Of the making of I'm still here Is that what the movie Was called With Joaquin yeah. Phoenix Um these were all matters of public record, but it seems this is part of the, the trend that I'm talking about. This in, this increased uh, holding people's uh, ho- holding people accountable and holding their art accountable because of that.
0: Well, and and in retrospect, uh, we along those lines we heard about Bernardo Bertolucci uh, with Last Tango in Paris, right? And, which, and so, w- which led me to. Take down my poster That's right And yeah. replace it with what? I don't remember With Aliens with, Aliens, with, that's With, uh, right.
1: yeah you Can't find two more different movies Than Last Angle in Paris And Aliens But I like The image of It's, uh it's it's uh, Ripley holding Newt with yeah. the with the
0: you know weapon in her hand. It's yeah. a pretty badass She's a strong woman who yeah. still still falls into her mother role as she should. Um, <laughs> obviously, right? That's that's She's, the point you're making. I
1: feel like this is not the time for that kind of sarcasm.
0: <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, everybody. Uh, I, I hear you murmuring out there. I'll have to remember <laughs> to put that in. Um, So uh, (laughs) this is like Uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah. But the question then is, and you know, this is something that uh, that we have talked about on the show. Is that something? Is that a good thing that people are holding somebody's art accountable for what they have done outside of it?
1: Uh, I I think someone drawing a line because. Here's here's where I think it does work. I haven't heard people saying Manchester by the Sea is bad because of this. Right. Right. But they're saying I can't in good conscience support this because of this and that I think is perfectly acceptable.
2: Okay. Uh
0: yeah, what I what I have encountered along those lines, uh though this is hardly anything new, is um you know, people that are uh politically uh, conservative you know and this is obviously a very uh, turbulent year politically um and you got you a lot of, <laughs> oh boy david i've got some bad news for you <laughs> uh, or good news hey who's to say you i you know i uh, we all see you wearing that uh, that uh, make america great again hat that you're wearing um no it's uh you know so i feel like this is a time when people were very what
1: is your favorite variant on the make america great again that you've seen because uh, I like Tom Morello's from Rage Against the Machine Make America Rage Again cap that's pretty, that he's been wearing. That's, that's a good one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it's also a little self-serving.
1: Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> but... Yeah. Keeping in spirit with the with Donald Trump himself. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Self-promotion. Yeah, All there's right.
0: something funny about Rage Against the Machine promoting themselves uh, using uh, people's uh, disenfranchisement.
1: Yeah. Um, Did I tell you that I saw Tom Morello, like, the weekend after... The uh, The election I was driving through Beverly Hills As I yeah. did. And he was walking across the street with, with two kids I'm assuming they were his kids And so I, I literally Like he was at a crosswalk I literally had to stop And let Tom Morello go And a part of me Just wanted to get out of the car And be like Tom what do we do?
0: <laughs> <laughs> he just goes, rage, man. Rage.
1: <laughs> rage again. Um, All right. I, I said, you want to uh, go back to talking about what you were talking about? Sorry.
0: Yeah. Uh, what uh, What's interesting is is we see a little bit of it, of course, at the tail end um, of the year. But I think something to look, not look forward to, but something that we probably can't, that we will see in the future is a lot more um, separation of political Ideologies and political parties, in general, but also what I've noticed is uh, after you know Meryl Streep gave gave her speech that was you know anti Trump and my, and my guess is we're going to hear a lot of anti Trump stuff at the Oscars. Maybe even um, here at the BPS. Maybe even here at the BPS. Who's to say? I don't know. Our our uh, presenters are pretty crazy, <laughs> um, but. Uh, And as that happens, there is an attitude of, I don't want to give these people my money when they so obviously don't like me. And their films, in some way, might reflect that. So why would I want to give that money? Now, that's something that... I think that the person is limiting themselves tremendously because you know you could still miss out on some amazing art, and somebody doesn't isn't necessarily going to infuse their their work with their politics, or at least for me, not in such a way as to negate the art that they are making. But I just feel like you you now see, and you will continue to see Hollywood and uh, and I would say maybe filmmakers in general, but definitely American filmmakers. Uh, taking stands, and my guess is they'll start taking stands with their films as well. I think you're going to see a lot more political films, a lot Mm. more uh, uh, dystopian future or dystopian present films. Yeah, can we have more of those? Have we not reached the saturation point on dystopian futures yet? Look, as long as two young people fall in love, then I'm fine (laughs) with it, Uh, but uh, against all odds. But um, yeah, so it's... I think... Having not seen a whole lot of trends within films themselves this past year, we've seen a lot of groundwork laid to see major trends in the next, you know, four years. And I'd say within the next six months, we'll start to see uh, the anger reflected.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a a distinction to be made there. Because I think the impulse to not see art made by someone who disagrees with you politically is a a bad one. I, for one, am always eager to see the new Clint Eastwood movie. But but the Casey Affleck-Nate Parker thing is uh, a a slightly different animal because this is someone who um, seems to have hurt people and not paid any consequences for it. And so there is uh, uh, this—and because that's— acting like a shit and I'm getting away with it is such a part of Hollywood history that to keep spending money on these movie tickets and Blu-rays and whatever um, uh, is to be complicit in it to some extent. And I think um, obviously the Nate Parker and Casey Affleck are... um, These these, uh, allegations and charges and all that are, uh, you know, um, uh, particularly heinous. But um, it's, you know every day all day long in hollywood and i mean all day long because pAs are forced to work incredibly long sure. hours are pAs are treated like shit all the yeah. time um and it's something that hollywood has just uh been so up its own ass about and, and 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 snobbish about that it's just it's not even just accepted it's almost a celebrated part like this is this industry you have to like uh you know Earn your way through. You have to. You have to 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 put in your 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 time and pay your dues, as it were. And and that's which is true.
0: Well, here's the thing. That's true. Just as far as work. Yes, that's true in any job. But in Hollywood, you don't have to make
1: it worse. Yes, in some reason for some reason Hollywood. People think that making movies is akin to curing cancer or whatever the fuck, right. and they and they treat it like it's worth it, yeah. uh, and it's and it's a, a, you know it's at the uh, labor laws are broken every day all day long in Hollywood, and no one says anything because the people who uh, are being hurt by it have no power, right. and to pursue it would hurt their careers. Yeah, um, and when that takes a turn into. Uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault—it's—it's—it's—that's uh, uh, too insidious for us to keep turning a blind blind eye to. And I think that's uh, why. Yeah, people who have said, um, "I'm not going to see Manchester by the Sea," or "I'm not going to see Birth of the Na- Birth of the Nation," uh, uh, I think that's a perfectly respectable impulse. We have to start speaking up for uh, not just against harassers, but uh speaking up for victims in 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 a way that we
0: haven't yeah it's it's a dilemma um because at this point if you're somebody that hasn't seen for example chinatown uh and you know all about roman polanski do you see chinatown yeah that's a tough um and it's and in a situation like this, where the reason that people are excused is because they are bankable or they're artistically successful or what with awards or whatever it is, and so um, and beca- and if you can try to take a chunk out of their bankability or out of their artistic cred by not seeing something and, and trying to encourage others not to see something, then you know then it might make them a bit more susceptible to to consequences in the future but at the same time it's it's so it's so difficult because some of this art is amazing you know Chinatown is amazing Manchester by the sea is amazing and yeah. it's, so it's it, you know as an art lover you just find yourself torn between the 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 people who've done terrible things but who are also capable of tremendous things and are the things they ca- they are capable of more important to posterity uh, than the than the things that they did to individuals now i d- I, I don't think so but that's- i don't think so
1: and also i think in both cases um, you can't treat it as an individual you can't treat it as an individual film and say this film Manchester by the Sea no matter how great it is 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 worth <laughs> worth it, mm-hmm. and you also can't treat the individual actions as individual action because as I as I laid out, there's a part of there there, there is a it's part and parcel with uh, fame in Hollywood um, getting away with shit, yeah. and so uh, in in both cases, you're not taking a stand against Casey Affleck, you're taking a stand against um, a certain.
0: Um, sickeningly permissive culture, and yet, I still think everyone should see Manchester by the Sea. It's like, a great, it, it's, it's so a great, great movie. There, yeah. you know, therein lay the, you know, the the issue with yeah. with talking about film, not merely the individual films and not even individual filmmakers and their career, but talking about the whole of film, which is the it's the industry, it's the product. It's our reaction to such, and yeah. uh, and, and that's what the BPs are all about. That's not actually true.
1: Yeah, uh, um, yeah. I know we should we should move on, but it's also um, making it even stickier. Is you know boycotting Manchester by the Sea is boycotting more than just Casey Affleck. It also right. turns into boycotting Kenneth Lonergan, who's making art that I think is good for humanity. Yes, he's uh, incredibly uh, empathetic and compassionate uh, as a as a filmmaker, and and so there are all these things to to weigh. But I don't think it's. Uh, I think it's. I think these conversations are great to have And I don't think it's our place uh, or our desire To come to a conclusion about How, you know, how people should or should not uh, Spend their money
0: at the box office and, if, uh, and yeah, if somebody decides That it is important for them to send a message And so they're not going to see Manchester by the Sea, for example um, Then that is their decision And then at the same time If somebody says I am willing to see this film Despite it being made by deeply flawed, broken People and, mm-hmm. and and possibly subsidizing somebody's behavior because the film and the filmmaker are more important than that in a in a greater sense. If somebody decides that, I'm not sure if I even agree with the reasoning, but I can't say that they're wrong either. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's very complicated. And uh, what a way to start a show.
1: Well, speaking of backlash, the other thing I wanted to get out um, this year that I that I hope people. Uh, Uh, I'm eager to see how this award show goes I I obviously know what the answers are Or what the winners are um, But I'm eager to see if the BPs uh, Becomes a part Of the La La Land backlash
0: Yeah I guess we'll uh, We'll just have to wait and see But not that long Because the BPs are about to start so oh, let's. There's the music we're being played on. Oh yeah, you know we. Hey guys, we're in charge of this. Uh, so uh, yeah, thank you everybody for attending, and uh, you at home, thanks for watching, and uh, let's start the show. All right, let's kick things off right with uh, one of our favorite contributors uh, here to present Best Supporting Actor,
3: Rita Cannon. Thanks guys, I'm excited to be here to present the award for Best Supporting Actor. The nominees are. Mahershala Ali, Moonlight, Alden Ehrenreich, Hail Caesar, John Goodman, 10 Cloverfield Lane, Lucas Hedges, Manchester by the Sea, and Harvey Scrimshaw, The Witch. And the BP goes to Mahershala Ali, Moonlight. (laughs) Barry Jenkins' Moonlight is packed with wonderful performances, all of which, because of the film's three-part structure that divides even its lead role among three actors, could reasonably be called supporting roles but Ali's performance as conflicted drug dealer Juan stands out. Ali only appears in the first third of the film, but his role as a complicated father figure to the film's main character, Chiron, is effectively Moonlight's inciting incident, at least from an emotional standpoint. Juan is a tough guy with a dangerous job, whose relationship with Chiron forces him to re-examine his approach to masculinity, self-preservation, and love, Even when he disappears from the film, in a literal sense, his presence is felt whenever Chiron confronts one of those issues, which happens pretty much every day of his life. Juan is one of the first characters we meet in Moonlight, and Ali's performance ensures that we're thinking about him right up until the end of the film. Congratulations, Mahershala Ali, on your BP Award for Best Supporting Actor.
1: Thank you, Rita. Up next, to introduce the category of Best Costumes is another Battleship
4: Retention favorite. Give it up for Terrence Johnson. Thanks, guys. I'm excited to be here to announce the nominees for Best Costume Design. And the nominees are Mary Zofras for Hail Caesar, Joe sang jeong for The Handmaiden, Madeline Fontaine for Jackie, Mary Zofras again for La La Land, and Linda Muir for The Witch. And the BP goes to Joe sang jeong for The Handmaiden. Uh, the Handmaiden... The technical aspects of the handmaiden are just really really stellar Um, and in particular the costume design sort of differentiating the character stations in life um, and ultimately the seduction of you know our sort of poor character who's working um, who thinks she's working with somebody else to take down the rich one um, and seduce her the scene where she tries on the dress um, is really really key to the movie as well as like her going through all of the shoes and it becomes a really strong focal point of emphasis. Also, in the sort of the statement scene with the, um, the live sex show, uh, the costuming in that is pretty spectacular as well. Uh, so yeah, this is a pretty great winner. I'm really happy.
0: Thanks, Terry. All right, so here to present for Best Animated Film, Julie Cesnovich.
5: The nominees for Best Animated Film are Finding Dory, Kubo and the Two Strings, Moana, the Red Turtle and Zootopia. And the winner is Kubo and the Two Strings. I personally consider this not only the best animated film of the year, but one of the top 10 films of the year overall. The more movies you see, the harder it is to come across something truly unique, especially in the realm of family films, where there's no real incentive to innovate. Yet Innovate Kubo does, pushing stop-motion animation to such heights that it received an Oscar nomination for visual effects, the first animated film to do so in over two decades. The plot is also incredibly unique. While the basic theme is coming-of-age meets hero's quest, the specifics make it stand out, from reincarnation to amnesia to hallucinations to an ocean full of eyeballs. The voice cast is also quite wonderful, lending gravitas through their emotional performances. It's rapturous, transportive, and unquestionably the best animated film of the year. Congratulations to Kubo and the Two Strings.
1: Way to go, Julie. Up next, my personal favorite category, Best Stunts, your presenter,
6: Ryan O'Leary. Oh, wow. Um, What an honor it is to be here to accept the first ever Battleship Pretension BP Lifetime Achievement Award. You know, um, I was expected with my great career in life that uh, I would receive many of these lifetime achievement awards. And, uh, you know, usually they give those to you when you're old and about to die. So do you guys know something I don't? But um, I, I just, I can't believe that you're giving this to me. I, I know I was a great guest on my two proper appearances, but I'm just, I'm just glad that you guys have selected me. I'm sorry, I'm really moved. Um, I guess you, if you want, you could change the name of this award for years to come to the ROs uh, from the BPs. And I gotta say, looking at this award, it's so beautiful. And uh, why why does it say uh, Rogue One Best Stunts? What what kind of shit is this? I came all the way out here, and this the you guys guys is this the right award? I'm really confused. Um, Best Stunts Rogue One. Uh, I guess this is a big... Is this a big stunt? Are you fucking punking me? Um, I, I'd like some explanations, but uh, congratulations, Rogue One, for your award. Um, I'd like to know what's going on with my Lifetime Achievement Award, but uh, I guess this is back to you, David Backstabber, and Tyler, emo boy, listen to the Smiths. Um, all right, fuck this. Uh, congratulations, Rogue One.
0: Thank you, Ryan. And now to present Best Score, Aaron Newworth via satellite.
7: Hello. The nominations for Best Original Score highlight some interesting themes found in the various acclaimed features from this past year. The melancholy scene in The Journey of Chiron, the haunting scenario put before Jackie Kennedy, the whimsy and wonder, along with some Jurassic Park provided for Hank and Manny. These are just some of the ideas found in the various musical arrangements for the nominated films. With that said, the nominees are Johan Johansson for Arrival, Mika Levy for Jackie. Justin Hurwitz for La La Land. Nicholas Bertel for Moonlight. Robert McDowell for Swiss Army Man. And the winner for Best Original Score is Justin Hurwitz for La La Land.
1: killed it, Aaron. Thank you. Next category, the Bruce McGill Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes, presented by Alexander Miller of E.S.
8: Yes, yes. Thank you for having me here tonight. What may seem like a quirky inclusion to the annual BPs, the Bruce McGill Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes is a fine distinction, recognizing the roles that are the connecting tissue to the films we love. To quote Konstantin Stanislavski, there are no small roles, only small actors. However, every performer leaves an impression, no matter how much screen time they have or lines of dialogue they deliver. Alfred Hitchcock also went on the record with, I never said all actors are cattle. What I said was all actors should be treated like cattle. Well, for the collective sake of actors everywhere, I hope no one is treated like small cattle. Having gotten that out of the way, I think it's time to announce our nominees for this year's Bruce McGill Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes. And the nominees are Will Arnett for Pop Star Never Stop, Never Stopping. Margaret Bowman for Hell or High Water. Ralph Fiennes for Hail Caesar. Katie Mixon for Hell or High Water again. Channing Tatum for Hail Caesar. And this year's winner for. The Bruce McGill Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes is Channing Tatum! To celebrate your win this year, I had written you a poem, Channing Tatum, but my doctor has instructed me that after last week's knitting incident, I am rendered incapable of reciting poetry. However, I have constructed a crude but sentient robot with a voice modulator to assist me.
0: Roses are red, violets are blue, you are a good actor, right dude? Thank you for accepting this award as it is a fine distinction from the BP Fleet 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 Fucking Robot
8: Fleet 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 Fucking Robot. Don't Alex don't remember Don't listen to the robot. Listen to the robot fucking robot.
0: Thanks, Alex. Okay, now here to present best original screenplay, Craig Schrader of USatellite.
9: Thanks, guys. 2016 was a great year for movies, and as would be expected, it's a tight race for this year's Best Original Screenplay BP. So let's jump right into it. The nominees are Taylor Sheridan for Hell or High Water, Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea, Jim Jarmusch for Patterson, Yorgos Lanthimos and Ephesus Philippou for The Lobster, and Robert Eggers for The Witch. And the winner of this year's BP for Best Original Screenplay is Kenneth Lonergan for Manchester by the Sea. There were a lot of fantastic screenplays this year. Uh, In addition to Manchester by the Sea and the others nominated, I'd like to spotlight Mike Mills' screenplay for 20th Century Women, as well as the Coen Brothers' divisively madcap script for Hail Caesar. That being said, it's both exciting and nearly inevitable that Lonergan and Manchester by the Sea would win the BP for Best Original Screenplay. It's a masterful portrait of grief that Lonergan cultivates from page one of his script and fleshes out into one of the year's best films. Featuring two characters, played wonderfully by Casey Affleck and Lucas Hedges, who each find their lives at a formative nexus, Lonergan's screenplay doesn't force revelations on Lee and Patrick—that's Affleck and Hedges, respectively— Instead, it weaves quiet moments of painful intimacy, banal comedy, and understated epiphanies into one cohesive narrative that becomes a masterful study in a comfortable life confronted with unspeakable heartache. The film unfolds in a nonlinear structure frequently inserting extended flashbacks amidst the narrative's central thrust. And Lonergan's screenplay handles this mechanic wonderfully, weaving the tonal changes of the flashbacks seamlessly and in a way that immerses the viewer into Lee's dichotomous relationship with his painful present and his more joyful past. And for a film so steeped in tragedy, Lonergan's screenplay comes to life in light, routine moments. Patrick's dogged pursuit of just one minute of alone time with his girlfriend, or Lee's almost comical frustration at forgetting where he parked his car. It's in these small moments that Lonergan's screenplay and the film as a whole really explore how mundane life trudges forward after a tragedy. So congratulations to this year's BP winner for Best Original Screenplay, Kenneth Lonergan and Manchester by the Sea. Wear it proudly. Back to you guys.
1: Craigles, you did it again. Next category is Best Supporting
2: Actress. And here to present is Daryl Tuff, Sevilla Satellite. Thanks, Tyler and David. First things first, I'd like to congratulate Battleship Pretension for reaching 500 episodes this past year. It's been an honor to play a very small part in something so special. What you do makes a great contribution to modern film criticism. I say that not only as a rare contributor, but as a listener, a reader, and a fan. Actually, I was originally planning to be there tonight in person, but uh, after the whole Brexit thing, things kind of fell apart around here. You know the apocalyptic scenes from Children of Men? Imagine that, but worse. I haven't been outside the house in months now. My tea supply is running low. You know, bandits of criminals are currently roaming the streets around here, armed with crossbows taking any prisoners they can. I'm recording this from a dark, damp basement, leaking pipes slowly dripping sewage water on my head. Actually, I should try to be quiet here because, um, I don't know what will happen if they find me. On the plus side, though, I needed some wallpaper and toilet roll, so my stack of 10 pound notes I have here at least holds some worth in the world. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? Sorry, David. The nominees for Best Supporting Actress are Viola Davis, Fences, Golshiftha Thorahani, Patterson, Lily Gladstone, Certain Women, Naomi Harris, Moonlight, Michelle Williams, Manchester by the Sea. The winner is Viola Davis. Fences. It's easy to watch the trainer or usual walled clips for fences and see the powerful sense of frustration within Davis's performance. Indeed, she gets a few moments of pure unhinged acting within the film, of instinctive fear, pain, and fury, as she successfully bounces off Washington's immature, proud, and highly uncontrollable character. These intense moments are indeed great, engaging, and emotionally charged but yet these moments hold little weight standing alone. What makes Davis's performance so gut-punching while frustrated at Washington is the calm and caring composure she had held up to this moment. Notice the difference between scenes of her character alone in the film compared with scenes containing other people. With others, she's composed, a performance of strength and compassion that acts as a buffer to the frustration happening around her. Alone, she is vulnerable. Her act doesn't need to be held up in these moments. So instead, we see a broken woman corroded by years of struggle. The performance is great because of this fine line the line between keeping up an act of stability while suppressing heartbreak internally and the moment when the levee breaks, the banks burst, and the river of tears runs uncontrollably down the exhausted and broken faith. Davis balances each of these states perfectly, using one to enhance the power of the other. For that reason she holds and sustains the central drama of the entire film, making a very worthy winner for this year's BP Best Supporting Actress. Um actually uh, things are quite desperate here. Can can someone in the audience send help? Uh oh, I think I think they're trying to break in uh, oh no but, uh the the uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Have a great night and roll well on o- All
0: right, let's hope everything turns out okay for Daryl. But we do need to move on. Uh, here to present best editing is Jim Rohner
10: via satellite. Thank you, David and Tyler, for inviting me back to the BPs for a third consecutive year. And to commemorate this momentous occasion, I have invited along with me my pre-war building radiator in order to assist me in handing out the award for Best Editing. The nominees are Joe Walker for Arrival, Sebastian Sepulveda for Jackie, Tom Cross for La La Land, Joy McMillan and Nate Sanders for Moonlight, Brett Granato, Maya Mama, and Ben Sozanski for OJ Made in America. The envelope, please, Radiator. Thank you. The winner is Tom Cross for La La Land. And I think uh, when it comes to awards for editing, a lot of us like to think that best editing typically goes to most editing. But when it comes to Tom Cross and La La Land, I think it's actually um, the, the distinguishing of... Um, when to use different editing styles and sort of within a scene um, when to specifically hold on shots rather than a focus on cutting back and forth between action within the scene and when to move on to the next scene. Um, Being that La La Land is a musical, there are a bunch of different musical ensembles, a bunch of different songs that have different moods and different tones to them, um, and there is different editing to sort of accommodate those styles and and, and to accommodate the, the, the different um, moods that the film is going through. We open with uh, Another Day of Sun which um, is all stitched together to look like it's one long take when in all actuality it's a bunch of different shots that are stitched together so you have a seamless quality to that. Um, later on you have Start a Fire uh, a song that features John Legend which is, is cut together very much like a music video. A little bit more kinetic, a lot more cuts um, resembling sort of the, the jazz piece at the end of Whiplash and then of course you have very emotional scenes such as a lot of the conversation between Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone in which um, there's more of an emphasis on focusing on reaction shots and having the camera linger on what people are are saying with their, with their facial expressions rather than just cutting back and forth in the standard kind of shot reverse shot of a, of a typical conversation? And then, of course, we just have, um, you know, really kind of dramatic or, or, or moments with bring a bit more um, showiness to them, such as uh, the transition between um, summer and fall, in which we have a, a concert ending and the crowd noise kind of building up. Then there's a very harsh cut to fall, which, of course, um, is not just the seasonal change, but also um, an allegory or an allusion to the emotional change and the emotional fall of the relationship that is to come so uh when it comes to, to best editing in this category i don't think it's the most editing but i think it is a distinction as to when to use certain styles of editing when to hold on the best shots and knowing when is time to move on from one scene to the next so uh, fantastic film i saw it three times in theater myself and it's certainly near the top of the list for me so um congratulations to tom cross congratulations to la la land um and thank you radiator for joining me um to present this award
1: Thanks, Jim. Go Rangers. Next up, the coveted award for best foreign film, presented by BP favorite Rudy Obias. via satellite.
11: Thank you, Tyler and David. It is my honor to be presenting uh, the BP award for this year's best foreign film. And without further ado, let's let's get on with it. And the nominees are L from director Paul Verhoeven. The Handmaiden from director Park Chan-wook, Neruda from Pablo Lorraine, Our Little Sister from director Hirokazu Korida, and finally, Julieta from director, the wonderful director Pedro Alvadovar. And this year's BP goes to The Handmaiden from Park Chan-wook. Now this is a fantastic film. Uh, this was actually my number two movie of 2016 in my top 10, which you could read at battleshipretention.com. And not, not just you know best my, one of my favorite foreign films of this year, one of my favorite films period from 2016. It, it's just so wonderfully pulpy and sleazy. It's a you know, it's a very delicious film, uh, not just in terms of subject matter, but also in terms of execution and it's it's technical feats. It's probably one of the most beautiful films uh, you'd see in 2016 in terms of cinematography, production design, costume design, and and overall tone. It's such a beautiful picture that you can mistake it for something a little bit more highfalutin. But the the, the cool thing about The Handmaiden is that it's it's a genre movie. You know, it's a a strange con artist type film. Uh, there's a beautiful love story at the center of this, you know. And con- considering the subject matter and and the the romance throughout, we we should call this this wonderful uh, South Korean director Park Chan Wook. Uh, it's it's such a, a fantastic film. I can't emphasize that enough. And it it, it definitely deserves uh, this year's BP award for best foreign film. I highly recommend it. Check it out. It, it's on video, or if it's playing in a the theater near you, please leave. Pause this episode right now go to your local Cinemaplex and just watch this film it's fantastic uh, back to you Tyler and David
0: thanks Rudy feels a little bit xenophobic that you said that in English but uh, let's move on uh, the next category is best art direction presented by Sarah Brinks via satellite
12: thanks guys as always I'm thrilled to be back at the BP ceremony and this year I get to present the award for best art direction I do apologize in advance for any name mispronunciations. The nominees for Best Art Direction are Jess Concher, Hail Caesar, Dieu son The Handmaiden, Jean Rabas, Jackie, David Wasco, La La Land, Craig Lothrop, The Witch. And the winner is Dieu son The Handmaiden. The Handmaiden was a film that... I couldn't form an immediate opinion about. I kind of had to think about it. But the one thing that I was sure about is that the film has stunning art direction. The Handmaiden is so defined and reliant on its art direction, and I think that a misstep here could have taken the film from the pulpy fun that it is to sort of just weird and exploitative. But instead, the art direction is is really dynamic and it's edgy, just like the plot. And the drama of the story is really mimicked in the art direction, probably most notably in the house where Lady Haidako lives with her really creepy uncle. Um, The house is half English design and half Japanese, so you always know where you are in the house, whether it's the very English-style rooms uh, of Lady Haidako or it's the very Japanese um, library where her uncle mostly is. Um, But you also see other places in the film like the Korean slums or the beautiful monastery where the wedding takes place. And even places like the insane asylum or the basement. So this contrast that you get from set to set and location to location really keeps the audience anchored throughout the film. You always know where you are, which really helps because there is a lot going on in this film, especially with the three different chapters. Dew He's stunning art direction really enhances the entire film from the performances to the story to the beautiful costumes, and it does it without ever really feeling too showy. The Handmaiden sort of feels purposely just out of step with reality, and I think Dew's art direction really helps keep it both grounded, but also a little bit fantastical. So congratulations, and back to you, Tyler and David.
1: Wow, Sarah. Just wow. Next up in the category of best adapted screenplay, your nominees will be presented by Battleship Retention Zone, Aaron Pinkston via satellite.
13: As Hollywood films are becoming increasingly adapted from superhero stories or previous films, it's good to know that at least the nominees in this year's BP for best adapted screenplay show that films that are adapted from plays or novels or other sources can be just as original, as creative, clever, and make as good films as its counterparts in the original screenplay categories. That these films can take material and make out of it something purely cinematic. The nominees for the BP for Best Adapted Screenplay are Arrival, screenplay by Eric Heisserer, adapted from Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. Fences, screenplay by August Wilson, adapted from the play Fences by August Wilson. The Handmaiden, screenplay by Jiang Seo Kyong and Park Chan Wook, adapted from Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Moonlight, screenplay by Barry Jenkins, adapted from In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell Alvin McCraney and Silence. Screenplay by Jay Cox and Martin Scorsese. Adapted from Silence by Shusaku Endo. And the winner is Arrival. Screenplay by Eric Heisserer. So I don't think we really could have gone wrong with with any of these five really good screenplays and really good adaptations. I think we see that a lot of these are taken from a source that, that really is, is redefined and translated through the work of film. And I think *Rival* is a, a really good example of that. Uh, of course, it's, it's from a short story, a, a really well-loved, praised short story, but screenwriter Eric Kaiserer and director Denis Villeneuve really take that material, embrace it, embrace its messages, embrace its sort of unique structure, put it on the screen and and really let it shine as as a piece of cinema when I think about the screenplay I I think that there are two things that really stick out to me one is its structure which is sort of this whirlwind of of different revelations uh, you know a really sharp character study that that changes over the course of time uh, quite literally uh, as as the film is, is so much about how we perceive time and also its message. So this is a very heady, very emotional and intellectual science fiction film, which we've seen a lot of, especially in recent years. Uh, typically, though, these films, they, they tend to look at the worst in humanity. They tend to look at a future that has become dystopian, that is scary, that has become, you know, really taking the way that the world looks today increasingly so especially in recent weeks and really projects that out to an extreme arrival though it almost does the opposite uh, which is I think is, is a really brilliant way to tell a story like this it it seems like it could be that sort of aliens come to earth to attack us to steal our resources drive the world insane and and the powers of the world fit, pitting them against each other but in the end it shows that if we just listen to each other that if we work together we can really do great and exceptional things and and I think that lasting message is something that I'm going to remember when I think about the world around us and I hope that a lot of people take that message to heart as well so thanks a lot.
0: This year marked the passing of a number of beloved celebrities, none more beloved than the king of TV, Paul Goebel. After surviving his well-documented suicide attempt, Paul died soon after on an outbound train from Istanbul. He was found in his train compartment, stabbed 12 times. It seems that while the train was stuck in a snowbank, some random psychopath snuck aboard the train and murdered Paul, slipping silently off the train after the deed was done. This much was confirmed by the other passengers aboard Paul's train car, each of them coincidentally a celebrity that Paul had insulted on Twitter. There have been some convoluted theories about Paul's death, but everybody, from the other passengers to the police to the train conductor himself, agreed that the random murderer line of thinking was the simplest explanation. Paul's fellow passengers were last seen toasting each other and saying something about it finally being over, and we would like to join them in their toast to Paul Goebel, a deeply beloved man whose absence will be felt for years to come. So here's to Paul Goebel, the king of
14: TV. Long may he reign. Uh, It was quite the category this year because everyone in it sucks. Unbelievably bad. A fucking joke. Terrible the only award that movie should get is Biggest Waste of My Time
15: and anytime you got the Pope and the Dixie Chicks against you your time is up here's a trophy now go home and be quiet thanks, go fuck yourselves baby, if you've ever wondered wondered whatever became of me i'm living on the air in cincinnati cincinnati wkrp got kind of tired of packing and unpacking town to town up and down the dial maybe you and me were never meant to be just baby think of me once in a while W-K-R-P in Cincinnati
0: Sad. So our next category is Best Cinematography, and
16: here to present Matt Warren. You know, if fictional TV ad man Don Draper were asked to create a tagline for the art of cinematography, he'd probably come up with something like, Cinematography, it's what you're looking at. Here are this year's nominees. Bradford Young, Arrival. Linus Sandgren, La La Land. James Lexton, Moonlight. Rodrigo Prieto, Silence. Jaron Blacksky, The Witch. And the winner is Linus Sandgren, La La Land. So I was home recently in Utah talking to my mom about La La Land. And the thing that she said about it was that it was just the right amount of real and not real. And that extends to every element of the production, but particularly the camera, which can swoop and dolly during the elaborate choreography or settle into a simple locked-off shot, reverse shot, when it's time to let the actors shine. Um, and it really glides seamlessly from one to the other in ways that you, you don't even really notice until you... Sort of stop and look at where you are compared to where you were maybe 20 minutes prior. Um, also, I think Sandgren and his team were able to achieve a really interesting color palette for the film that somehow feels at once oversaturated but also washed out, which is a lot like how LA actually looks uh, on most days, particularly as viewed from the above. Um, so, so good on you, Linus. The Bapademy graciously accepts this award on your behalf.
1: Thanks, Matt. Everybody give it up again for our man in Utah, Matt Warren. Next up, to present in the category of Best
17: Documentary, Inexplicable Fan Favorite, Jason Eakin. Thanks, David. I'm here to present the award for Best Documentary. And the nominees are 13th, directed by Ava DuVernay. Camera Person, directed by Kristen Johnson. No Home Movie directed by Chantel Ackerman. O.J., Made in America, directed by Ezra Edelman. Wiener, directed by Josh Kreitman and Elise Steinberg. And the winner of the Beepie for Best Documentary is... O.J., Made in America, directed by Ezra Edelman. Uh, I I will be accepting the award on behalf of Mr. Edelman. Um, You know, documentaries have the unique ability to seamlessly give the past the immediacy of the present and also to reflect on that past with the passage of time. And even though Ezra Edelman's brilliant documentary focuses on the 1960s through the 90s, There wasn't another American-made movie from 2016 that was more about what it feels like to live in America in 2016 than O.J. Made in America. Uh, If you don't know, it follows the now infamous O.J. Simpson from his childhood in Los Angeles through his NFL career and throughout his marriage, divorce, and murder trial for Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldberg. Some might argue that its running time, at nearly eight hours, gives it an unfair advantage over other films. But it's not the film's length that gives it its power. It's the film's scope, which demands the length. This is a film about race, class, police corruption, sports, celebrity, power, domestic abuse, and murder. It's about a divided America with two contrary perceptions of who O.J. was and what he meant. It's about the way those perceptions informed the way those same groups viewed the trial and especially the trial's verdict. Now, all of this is compelling material But look, just about everyone even remotely involved in the trial Wrote a book about the damn thing The country was saturated by it But that was 20 years ago What makes this documentary so endlessly compelling even now? I think it's because the OJ saga is both a cultural and technological flashpoint This is the height of celebrity scandal Combined with broiling racial tension And the evolution of the 24-hour news cycle How else could a domestic murder case be transformed into the trial of the century and must-see TV? This was the single event that spoke volumes about where we were then as a culture. And it's a place quite similar to the one we're in again now. For me, though, the most powerful aspect of the film is also the most frustrating and haunting. It's the way that the personal, racial, national pain created a fog around the trial and around what justice even looks like. For a black community that had just seen the police brutality against Rodney King go unpunished, justice meant making sure another black man didn't end up behind bars. But what if that black man identified more with his celebrity and privilege than the black community he was supposed to be representing? And what if it's painfully obvious that he committed the damn murders? Maybe the symbolic justice outweighs the actual injustice of letting a murderer go free— But what if that symbolic justice is undercut by the reaction from the white community who see this as the deliberate exoneration of a murderer? What if many of them, the white community, were equally outraged by Rodney King? And as for the police, does the indisputable racism of many on the police force negate O.J.'s responsibility for his actions? And would any of this even matter if O.J. weren't as beloved and rich as he was? Is this the story of a black man finally getting justice from a corrupt system Or is it the story of a rich celebrity hiring a team of lawyers to distort, disrupt, distract, and ultimately derail justice? Or are both sides so hopelessly corrupt that there's no way justice was ever going to be served? And it's right there in that angry knot of confusion and culture and motive that OJ Made in America becomes so desperately tragic. It's a painful place to be, but it can also be so instructive for us now to talk about it and think about it, to let it work its way through our brains so that maybe, just maybe, we can start to untangle that knot. I am so pleased to accept this award on behalf of O.J. Made in America. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Jason.
0: And now to present Best Actor, our editor-at-large, Scott Nye. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you all. You're you're too kind. I am, yes,
18: here to present Best Actor, The nominees are Casey Affleck for the film Manchester by the Sea, Adam Driver for Patterson, Colin Farrell for The Lobster, Ryan Gosling for La La Land, and Denzel Washington for Fences. And the winner is Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea. Yes, we have gone with the consensus on this choice, and I would say it is absolutely the right one. I've been a huge fan of Casey Affleck ever since the film Jerry back in 2003, and As good as he's been in Assassination of Jesse James or Ain't Them Body Saints, uh, I think this is his best work to date. It takes all the vulnerability that he's really made his name off of and incorporates a little bit of the creepiness that he's also made his name off of and brings it into a very well-rounded character that uses his natural gifts, his natural kind of awkward, halting voice and his natural uh, reticence as a physical actor uh, to build a man who is very much coming back from the brink of a lot of emotional trauma and trying to figure out how to reconnect with people. And all of uh, Casey Affleck's uh, gifts as an actor really feed him well, and he draws on so much more. And I really think Kenneth Allergan, uh created an environment where he can interact with people in a way that suits him best. It's very very raw and rough, uh, but very emotional as well. So... For that reason and many more, I'm glad that we have chosen Casey Affleck for Manchester by the Sea.
1: Thanks, Scott. And now to present
14: Best Actress, our curmudgeon at large, Ian Brill. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, The year 2016 had a number of wonderful female lead performances, uh, so much so that it's really... uh, you know, it's, it, people say this is kind of cliche, but I think in this year it's very true. That's hard to find just one uh, winner, but uh, the world needs losers, I guess. So here's uh, here are the nominees and the one and only one winner for Best Actress: Amy Adams for Arrival, Rebecca Hall for Christine, Isabelle Huppert. For Elle Natalie Portman For Jackie Emma Stone For La La Land And the winner is Natalie Portman For Jackie Uh, I really love this movie And She is the movie Uh, I mean Not just because she's playing the titular character It's because The many many Layers to what this uh, representation of Jackie Kennedy is going through is so challenging and difficult sometimes to wrap your head around, but it also is always captivating. There's a line in um, the John Ford movie, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, they say, when the legend becomes fat, print the legend. Well, what goes into printing the legend, especially when it's a... uh, a national legend, a national myth in the making. In Jackie, Jackie Kennedy uh, is creating the myth of Camelot in the wake of uh, JFK's assassination. And, and I mean, like, immediately in the wake of that assassination. And as you go through the film, you are given uh, a number of, of reasons why she may be doing it. She wants to provide continuity for the nation, that, uh, that the United States will stay strong after dealing with this tragedy. Um, she and uh, Robert Kennedy, played wonderful by uh, Peter Sarsgaard, they want to make sure that John F. Kennedy has a is remembered and has a great legacy despite not having a very long time in office and perhaps not accomplishing um, a great number of things. There's also the fact that she's dealing with her own personal grief and the fact that she has to remember a marriage that as is hinted in the film and as we know from history is presented as iconic but uh, in in reality was, was far from perfect. Uh, all these different motivations um, are at seem to be not necessarily odds but are definitely wrestling in that psyche and this is all done under a performance of a character who um, almost never lets her guard drop down. The film starts with a kind of a framing sequence where she's speaking to a reporter from Life Magazine a, a week or so after the assassination. And you think this is, ah, uh, she'll be saying how she really feels and that'll uh, be a commentary on what we see. Uh, but no, she's um, she makes sure she knows exactly what she's giving that reporter and what she's giving the reporter sometimes it feels like the truth, sometimes it feels like it isn't, sometimes she's giving him the truth knowing that he can't use it um you know she was in the media herself she was a reporter herself she was put into the spotlight uh you know this was the first presidency that started in the, that started in the age of television so she's adept even though she's never quite comfortable she is adept at using the media so she's always when I say, when we say spin, or when we say uh, creating myths, that sometimes sounds villainous, and often it is, but in this case, it's being used to sh- to process grief and to show strength. Um, and, in, and, it's, and it's using um, what is often a very superficial office, the office of the first lady, to do so. Um, and I think that's what makes the, the film so captivating, uh, even as it remains so ambiguous. The fact that Natalie Portman, as Jackie Kendi, there are rare times where we see her let her guard down, but most of the time she is almost never quite giving us the naked truth, but she is always, always resonating deeply with us. Congratulations Natalie Poorman I'm sure the award for the BPs is in the mail uh, and uh, back to Tyler and David Thank you Ian
0: and now to present Best Director You at Home I suggest you turn up your volume because the presenter is Josh Long
19: Good evening ladies and gentlemen
0: um, Josh sure. get closer to the mic
19: Oh, oh I'm um, not Further you away can, Okay right in Okay testing. okay Uh, Hi, Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, The nominees for Best Director are Park Chan-wook for The Handmaiden, Damien Chazelle for La La Land, Robert Eggers for The Witch, Barry Jenkins for Moonlight, Martin Scorsese for Silence, and Denis Villeneuve for Arrival. And the BP goes to Damien Chazelle for La La Land. Uh, I am excited about that pick. I enjoyed the film very much. I was a big fan of Whiplash when it came out. Uh, I think it showed a, uh, a lot of talent for a director who's very young. Um, and uh, yeah, it seems to capture a lot and have a, a bit of a world weariness in both films. I find a lot in both films, that uh, a lot to compare and contrast in both both films. Um, and I I can understand there's been a lot of criticism of the film because it seems like it's uh, just for Hollywood, and now Hollywood is awarding it with a bunch of Oscars, um, par- probably, uh, and but more importantly, a bunch of BPS. Um, but uh, I I think it's because it captures something that is very central to. Uh, to people in Hollywood which is following a dream and I don't think that's I think that because this dream specifically in the film is a Hollywood dream I think that's one of the reasons it appeals to people so much here but it really can be applied to anything and I think that is a very universal uh, human theme and the way that he deals with it is very challenging Um, and I think that's one of the that's one of my favorite things about the film now that's not even to speak to uh, the music, which is which is great, the uh, the visuals and um, the the way that Damien Chazelle is able to use his camera in this versus something like Whiplash, which was more about quick edits and uh, relied a lot on one key performance. Um, uh, this has great performances, but it doesn't rely on them as much, and um, it, it has. Great editing. That's why it won the BP for editing. But um, it, it's not just that. There is um, there, there's a real beauty to the way that he moves the cameras. That not only shows that he can be original, but also knows what the Hollywood musical is and has been for the last uh, hundred years. Um, so I guess ninety. I'm not going to do the math, but however many years you can figure it out at home. So I, I'm, I'm excited about this pick. It's a, a film that I love very much, and I'm, I'm hoping more and more people will get to see it.
0: All right. Thank you, Josh. Uh, so here we go. The big award. What is the best movie of the year, according to us? Which is to say, objectively, what is the best movie of the year? <laughs> well, let's wait for everybody to get back in their seats. Right, yes. Isabel Huppert, sit down. <laughs> Uh, look, I know Josh is bothersome, but, uh, you know, uh, we have uh, something to get to. So, uh, all right, so the nominees for Best Picture are Arrival, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight, and The Witch. And the winner is. Moonlight. Moonlight. <laughs> very
1: nose. I don't know.
0: I didn't uh, do the tabulations. It was pretty close, yeah. <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, not unlike with other awards, uh, it was very close between La La Land and Moonlight, um, with Moonlight edging it out.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, 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 I've made no secret of the fact that I love La La Land, but I like that we... Uh, uh, aren't part of that,
0: uh, right. that, that wave. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, you know, uh, congratulations to La, La Land for all the stuff that it won today uh, or tonight, whatever. I, I haven't quite determined what time of day There's this no is windows to here be. in the Kodak <laughs> Theater. <laughs>
15: exactly.
0: No clocks, no, no windows. Here it is. <laughs> Just a lot of uh, slot machines. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Uh, Moonlight is a, is a fascinating film, and I think a really good one, uh, if not Great. Um, when I think of what what it could have been, uh, there's no rule that Moonlight, because of the nature of the of the of what it is, which is you know a character study, there's no rule that it had to look as good as it does. Mm-hmm. It is beautiful, yeah. It is a, an absolute gorgeous film um, with uh, occasionally like virtuoso. Uh, camera work, uh, really wonderful use of of color. Like there's some nice yellows and blues, and it's so just visually, it's it's astounding. But then also, its story structure is is very interesting as well. And while there are times in in the third act, it feels, for lack of a better term, a little bit convenient uh, story wise. I feel like the the characters are written so vividly and they're played with such naturalism that I don't really question it until long after. And even then, I feel like I'm, I'm nitpicking. I, I think it's a, a really marvelous film uh, in so many ways. You mentioned the camera work, and that's one of the things that definitely stands out uh, about
1: it to me because, you know, based on what's uh, on the actual mise-en-scene, if you will, it's not the type of movie you would necessarily expect to be shot in scope. Right. Um, and yet, a, a lot of American indies are shot in scope these days, but what barry jenkins does thank god that um or, or what i guess what i should say is what he doesn't do which is what way too many american indie directors do with the with the widescreen uh frame these days is to ape wes anderson like mm. he uses the 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 sort of negative space that c- comes from having a you know in two of the three stories the the character um i i'm forgetting how you pronounce his name you just saw the movie uh chiron, chiron. Um, in two of the three sections he's a very small he's diminutive he's slight yeah. uh, and so um, Barry Jenkins uses a lot of the, the 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 frame around him you know so he's, yeah. he's, he's making these uh, putting together um, along with the cinematographer these b- very composed shots but they don't feel airless and meticulous and nitpicky yeah. the way that a lot of uh, Wes, Anderson, Wes Anderson ripoffs <laughs> do you know what I mean it, it's an organic use uh, of the frame and it kind of uh, it kind of tilts and teeters um you, you know uh, as it as it moves through this uh this space of uh of 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 Miami and it's uh, it's also I'm a sucker for you know movies that f- feel like a place you know yeah um no I, you know when a movie takes place in my neighborhood I'll be really nitpicky because I uh, I'll know but um I, I don't know this part of Miami but it feels Real, because it doesn 't feel like any vision of miami i 've really seen
0: before, yeah and it's it does seem unique to miami and i've i 've been to miami but i, I you know i 've been to you know touristy parts of miami but uh, you know i'm i'm thankful that because there's always the possibility, and we've talked about this before, there's always the possibility when you want to make a movie like this that you could try to just have it be an anonymous city and in doing so suggest that, oh, it could be anywhere. But by making it Miami, it is unique to mm-hmm. this particular place, but it is it could be anywhere. Uh, oddly enough, the specificity makes it more universal. Uh, and that choice is so fascinating and and the place really, I don't like to say that the place is a character, but the place is integral. Uh, the role that the beach plays mm-hmm. and the and the perpetually nice weather. Um, I don't know. I really believe that these characters live here and have lived here for a very long
6: time.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I want to point out you know, my most memorable scene in, in the film. I don't want to necessarily spoil anything. Sure. But um, I want to ask you, in the year 2016, okay. which scene was more superficially, immediately satisfying? Was it the scene in Hell or High Water where Chris Pine beats the shit out of that guy at the gas station? The the dude who's listening to shitty. Who's, I think he's listening to Attila, which is a very bad band, and brandishing a gun, <laughs> or is it the scene in this movie in Moonlight in the second season or second season the second section where Chiron gets his revenge on the bully? Which which one was more satisfying in the moment to you?
0: Well, I feel like I, I it, Moonlight doesn't feel like the kind of movie that allows me to think in those terms uh, because uh, you know the yeah
1: I I, I because I, I'll say I think you're right because Hell or High Water I was like yeah. And in moonlight, in the theater, I laughed out loud, and I went, "Yeah," and or I didn't say <laughs> yeah, but I was like, ha, ha, "Ha!" And then I immediately went, "That's not this. That's not what kind of movie this is." Yeah, I mean, it is. <laughs> I'm actually bringing my own bullshit, my own baggage
0: here. Sure. of Wanting to see a bully get his. Well, and and I think one thing that the film does well, because yes, I'm I'm very furious at that bully, and there's a particular, a particularly strong bit of camera work where he is portrayed almost as a wild animal. Uh, you know, just kind of terrorizing everybody around him before finally uh, arriving at uh, Chiron. And so they do a very good job of portraying this bully as truly monstrous. Uh, But I think there's also uh, an argument that could be made that he is a product of his environment that everybody knows... Who Chiron is, <clears throat> and there's probably a reason that he doesn't really have friends. Not a, only one guy and his, you know, cronies are terrorizing him, but it's worth noting that nobody else really hangs out with him. Right, and so while I'm not going to necessarily cry for the bully, um, I am. I'm also aware of, you know, all of these characters are internalizing a certain idea and possibly a, a certain philosophy. Uh, that that sort of uh, dictates their behavior but I think also while that moment is satisfying it is also heartbreaking because we know that that is Sharon sealing his fate uh, so to speak um, yes especially in retrospect yeah um, so but it's, yeah. but it is a moment that that honestly because Sharon so rarely sticks up for himself yeah for him to do that is is very empowering but and but the fact that this character cannot be empowered without there being dire consequences mm-hmm. is uh is is a shame but yeah I'm it's it's such such an engaging movie from yeah. from the word go um and and I'm very happy with our uh with our contributors and, and everybody who voted for it, I feel like um, I feel like it's it's a real achievement. It's a very special film.
1: I agree, and I think uh, in Moonlight's honor, we should uh, end this award show and uh,
0: let's all go get the Cuban food. Uh, On me. Yeah, okay, all right, fair enough, if you're going to say that. Uh, now, are you inviting everyone in the theater? That's what I meant. Oh, in true, like, Andy Kaufman fashion. <laughs> yeah, we're oh, all this- going... <laughs> Yeah, there are buses outside. Let's go, everybody. (laughs) All right. But thank you, everybody, for being here and you at home. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.